When I was a young child, my parents really wanted me to listen to Christian music. I have a much larger story to tell someday about my experience with um, Christian brands of art and music. I see some nods of the head, so I know who I'm going to talk to about that. <laughs> Thank you. My sermon today is not about that. My sermon today begins with me as a boy, maybe 11 or 12 years old, listening to a brand new album by the Christian band The Newsboys. The album was called Going Public, and the opening track was called um, Real Good Thing. Uh, I, I'm sure I was listening on either like a Walkman or a Discman. Either way, I'm sure I can't find anything like that anywhere. But I really loved the song right away. It was really well recorded and produced and had great guitar and drum parts, catchy harmonies. And on probably the third or fourth time listening through the album, I, I really began listening to the lyrics, trying to understand what they were about. And the chorus of Real Good Thing went like this. When we don't get what we deserve, it's a real good thing, a real good thing. When we get what we don't deserve, it's a real good thing, a real good thing. Sounds like the same couplet, but there's a difference. And I remember being genuinely confused. At the ripe old age of 12, I had enough experience to know that when you get what you don't deserve, that was indeed, or could be, a real good thing. Right? I knew what it was like to be shown mercy, leniency, generosity even. Many times I can remember not fully completing something and getting credit anyway. Not quite finishing my dinner and still being given access to a sweet treat, cutting corners in my chores, and being given a pass, more or less. So I knew what it meant to receive grace. But I was confused by the first line, and I actually thought it was a mistake. I thought it was maybe a glitch in an otherwise very pristine recording. Because it goes, when we don't get what we deserve, it's a real good thing. See, I also knew what it was like to have earned something and feel the sting of injustice for not getting what I had earned, what I had worked for. I knew, I knew what it was like to be the subject of lies that were not true, even at a, at a young age. And I, I still remember too vividly the times when I, was, I felt disrespected or dismissed, even at the age of 12, without good cause. I can't believe it, I thought. Could it be? be that they recorded this song incorrectly? That they mixed up the lyrics on the opening track? How embarrassing for the newsboys, you know? So thinking that I must have been missing something, I decided to consult an authority. I decided to consult someone. And I don't really remember who I asked. It was either my mom or my dad or my older sister. But I do remember clear as day the brand new realization of something that I hadn't understood before. See, whoever, whoever I consulted steered me in the most gentle way possible to the concept that all humans actually deserve eternal damnation. <laughs> it was like, what, what? <laughs> Sitting for the first time with this idea was, I guess in one way, extremely relieving, but in another way, deeply disturbing. 
Like, I get what I don't deserve, which was to go to heaven, and I don't get what I do deserve, which was to burn in hell. And I guess put that way, I'd have to agree with the newsboys that that's unequivocally a good thing. <laughs> but it could have been a bad thing, you know, which would have been less catchy to sing about, I think. See, it wasn't until seminary that I learned that the name of this type of theory of salvation is called substitutionary atonement. And it's a, a way more simplistic way that I just put it. But here is kind of how it goes. Jesus took our place, and because he died on a cross instead of us, the debt that we owe for our sins is canceled. And we experience God's forgiveness and love and acceptance. And honestly, it wasn't until seminary that I, I learned that this theory was just one of many theories of how God delivers and restores us. And that these particular set of theories, the substitutionary atonement kind of school of thought, were among some of the, the newest ones that Christians had kind of wrestled with, grappled with. Theories about how God delivers and restores us and these particular theories, the substitutionary atonement model, is, is biblical. I mean, it's there. It's in, our, it's in our New Testaments, particularly in the book of Hebrews, really, really profoundly. But as we'll be exploring throughout this season, there are lots of additional ways beyond substitutionary atonement to talk about God's saving us. Now listen, I, I guess I want to say this. I don't know how you've personally experienced this theory of atonement. I've spoken to many of you, lots of you, and lots of others who, who hold very dear this concept that Jesus died in your place, in our place. And for many of us, this, this is like the central truth of our faith, that God sent Jesus to die on a cross to wash away our sins, and so we're no longer enemies of God, fully forgiven and fully restored. It's beautiful. And yet, also, I can recall specific conversations with many of you, even quite recently, in which you've told me that this model of atonement caused you to question your faith in God. Some of you have asked questions like this. If God really wanted to forgive us, why couldn't God just decide to forgive us? Right? Why, why is blood sacrifice required for the forgiveness of sins? And why would the murder of an innocent person be God's condition for reconciliation with the world? That seems weird and incongruous. And really, for a lot of you, the problem of substitutionary atonement comes down to this, that it portrays a God who is remote or vindictive, requiring the torture and death of God's own son in order to redeem the world. And if it wasn't Jesus... It would have been us on the cross, which is a really scary quality of God to accept. Not such a real good thing, after all, for some. But friends, after spending a lot of time wrestling with this concept uh, over the last few years, <laughs> but also just this week, and looking at the scriptures, and, and really dealing with even my own mixed feelings about this, I've come to think of the concept of substitution, Jesus in my place, as a really important 
life-giving theory that brings good news to all of us. How's that for a teaser? Can we first go back to the text for this morning? I'm going to go ahead and summarize it for us. Luke 13 begins with Jesus addressing two current events of his day. You can turn to it if you want to. Luke 13, 1 through 5. Jesus addresses two current events of his day, which very awkwardly we are presumed to know something about, and we do not know anything about it. This type of thing probably happens all the time in scriptures, but it's especially pronounced here. Because the people, the people asked Jesus about a horrific incident in which Pilate had, quote, mingled the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices. It's just a terrible, terrible image. And it's likely a shorthand reference for many, one of many times that Pontius Pilate murdered Jews who, were, who criticized him. So just as an aside, we tend to think of um, Pilate, who's in the third stained glass window over there, we, we tend to think of, of Pilate as a measured, reasonable governor because of the depictions in our Gospels ab about how he interacts with Jesus at the end of Jesus' life. He's, he seems to be kind of like, you know, reasonable. But in fact, you really don't have to look far into the history records to see how brutal and inhumane this man was and how he governed over people. Our oldest creeds, in fact, if you recall, they recognize this, naming Pilate as the one under whom Jesus died, was, was, was killed and crucified. So in a bit of foreshadowing, going back to this text, Jesus is asked what he makes sense, what he makes of Pilate's brutality towards certain Galileans. And even without the knowledge of what exactly happened for us, we can understand enough about it because of Jesus' answer. He poses a question to them. Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? See, the implicit assumption that Jesus is, in, is addressing in his crowd is that these people who died uh, were, were treated so cruelly because of something they did, right? So either the prevailing wisdom was that they kind of had it coming to them, or they were told that by the authorities that they were convinced that, that these people had sinned. That was the prevailing explanation, they had instigated. They had brought it upon themselves in a way. It was tragic, but it was preventable. And Jesus answers his own question about whether or not the suffering was justified by saying, no, no, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. In other words, Jesus says, if you don't stop thinking that way, if you keep believing that sometimes people deserve brutality, if you don't recognize the myth of justifiable murder as a lie, it might be your murder they're justifying next. He doesn't stop there. Jesus voluntarily offers a second incident, which again, we have no reference for. Eighteen people were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Just as before, even without historical record, 
we can safely assume that this incident was another event in which people who died were blamed for their death. Were they construction workers, cutting corners and perishing from their own mistakes? Were they demonstrators against the controversial aqueduct that Pilate had been building toward the Pool of Siloam? Were they Roman officers defending Roman property? Either way, in any way, Jesus confronts the prevailing interpretation of justifiable suffering. Do you think, he says, do you think that they were worse offenders than anyone else living in Jerusalem? And he answers himself again in the same way, no. But if you don't repent of that type of logic, you are conditioning yourself to be the one for whom no one will grieve. Friends, I think that this passage is key to understanding why and how Jesus became for us the substitute, the one who willingly walked the way of the cross in order to throw himself on it and expose it as an instrument of suffering, justified by the law and order logic of Jerusalem and Rome. And this is a powerful way, I think, friends, to understand Jesus as our substitute, it's not that each of us is bound to be executed by state power. Although, although many of our forebears of faith have been killed in that way. I, th I believe Jesus suffered in our place, suffered in the only way, in the way that only humans could suffer. And he died forsaken by nearly everyone. See, the wrath of Rome was satisfied by the killing of Jesus, and his closest companions even severed ties with him. The only ones who didn't leave him or forsake him or believe the myth of justifiable death were his parents, his mother weeping near his bloody feet and his holy parent in heaven, holding him tighter than the nails in his hands. And see, here's the truth friends, about substitutionary atonement. If our image of God is different than Jesus' image of God, we might need to reconsider our perspective. Jesus doesn't paint anywhere God as a bloodthirsty tyrant. God is not vindictive or wrathful or angry in Jesus' eyes. No. Throughout Jesus' life, he shows us a God who, as the book of Exodus proclaims, is, quote, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Jesus shows us a God who doesn't withhold forgiveness, who, like the psalmist says, is good, ready to forgive who is abundant in loving kindness to all who cry out. The God of Jesus, as depicted in Luke, is a loving father. And how are fathers depicted by Jesus in the rest of Luke's gospel? Let's take a look. Luke 11, verses 11 through 13 Jesus says this, Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to those who ask? Luke 11, verse 2, says this. Jesus asks us to do this. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us and do not bring us to the time of trial. And of course, the most famous parable in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the prodigal son, in which God is depicted as a father who gives and gives and gives. And when the wayward son squanders everything and comes home utterly ruined and rejected, what does he do? He takes off in a dead sprint to meet him halfway and embrace him and restore him with no condition of punishment. Friends, what if God is not angry? What if God was never angry? What if Jesus is the prodigal son in this story, taking all of the riches of heaven and lavishly squandering them on undeserving people, and then, having been fully scorned and humiliated, returns stumbling into the loving arms of his holy parent, who readily welcomes him back. I mean, that might be a sermon for another day. It might actually be heresy. I don't even know. Either way, friends, this is the truth. Jesus is our substitute. He subbed himself into the game, fought the fight, remained faithful to his mission to demonstrate God's love, removed the power of sin which infects our hearts and penetrates our minds and clings to our bodies and tries to convince us that violence is natural and that hate is necessary and that war is just and that suffering is God's punishment for our brokenness, Jesus takes upon himself the full wrath of sin, the full wrath of lies. And God, the loving parent, was indeed satisfied by that type of radical love. Friends, so much more can be said here about God's choice to offer Jesus to us, to live in our home, to walk in our streets, to breathe the same air we breathe, to die in our place, in this place. So much more could be said about how this type of love, this type of radical confrontation with sin, sin that masks itself as greatness. There's so much more we can say about how that type of teaching is bound to find itself snuffed out by those whose lives are still under the power of sin. So much more can be said and needs to be said about how God's justice is still on the way and how we, how in the end we are all accountable for how we lived in response to the law of love that is the bedrock of all creation. But for now, maybe we can just ask, what does Jesus' sacrificial love mean to you? For some of you, it may be important to rest on the promise that you are forgiven. 
you are forgiven. You are not chained to the mistakes of your past. Jesus demonstrated that God is not bound to the transactional requirements of human laws. And rather, God stands eagerly willing and waiting to fully accept you just as you are without condition. For some of you, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross means that crosses are indeed arbitrary. They're in, they're, they may even actually be instruments that oppose the will of God directly. I mean, come on, to think that, as a, that a blameless person, very God incarnate, could in a very short time find himself in the crosshairs of political, economic, and religious power simply by communicating the message of God's love, that should tell us something about crosses. Where are the crosses in our midst, friends, that need to be taken up, which, as Pastor Seth has convinced me, does not mean that we continue to carry them around, but that we rip them out of the ground when we see them. We take them up. And finally, some of you maybe need to hear this truth about Jesus as your substitute. God loved you so much that God willed to become human in order to sink to the very depths, the lowest and most painful conditions of the body and the mind. Exhausted, misunderstood, condescended, betrayed, abused, tortured, abandoned, murdered. Our creeds tell us that he even descended into hell. God bled. God cried. God despaired. God knows what hell feels like. And God knows that love and life is possible, indeed inevitable, beyond that suffering. And that's the good news, friends. Jesus, who took our place, prepares a place within you and beyond the grave for each and every single one of you. And we say it to our children who are baptized here. God did this for you before you even knew it. Maybe even before you still know it. And that's a real good thing. A real good thing. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.